Hey everyone, welcome to the Travis Stork Show. I'm your host, Dr. Travis Stork. And today's interview with Dr. Brad Spellberg, I think is a wonderful update in terms of where we've been and where we are now with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Just as a reminder, Dr. Brad Spellberg is, is, is an infectious diseases expert and I think gives wonderful, rational, reasonable advice to all of us today's conversation, we talk about the importance of really balancing everything out because we need to prevent this from blowing up in our faces as we reopen the economy. So how do we do this smartly? We talk about that today. Brad is the Chief Medical Officer at Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center. In the podcast today, I always say he and I, we're just offering our opinions and our thoughts. Um, Still so much to play out with this virus and so many uncertainties. That is a scary thing in medicine. But there are some elements to this that are incredibly encouraging. If It's tough to, to say that during the middle of a pandemic. Um, and, and during the podcast, we explain why. So I hope you enjoy this update with Dr. Brad Spelberg. So Dr. Spelberg, I'm really excited we're talking again. I'm curious, though, if You look back right now at the last six weeks compared to our last conversation, where do you stand on that curve? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I'm not ecstatic. And you know what? I give you credit because I think back to our first conversation and you were one of the first infectious disease experts who said, Travis, we are smarter than this virus. If we all practice social distancing and we all do our best quickly and aren't reactionary, we can flatten curves in certain communities in this country. And I think a lot of communities have done that, but obviously there have been a lot of infections. There have been a lot of deaths. When you and I first talked, we weren't sure if by the time we talked six weeks later, there might be millions of deaths. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. The uh, We flattened the curve in many counties and states in the U.S., but it's been a hodgepodge. There's been a patchwork of responses. And the good news is that if we look at the Los Angeles area as a microcosm, just because I'm most familiar with those data, we completely avoided, at least thus far, a New York situation. But the cases came down and then plateaued. They have not continued to fall. And as we test more, we're finding more. So we're not as close to being done with this as we would have hoped. So let's break down the dichotomy between infections and mortality right now, because thinking back how this has unfolded, obviously anyone who's a doctor is disappointed in testing and how it played out. And I don't care who you are. No one is going to say that the testing has been wonderful in this country. And if, if they do say that, they're lying. (laughs) They are. I'm sorry, but it's true. (laughs) There have been a lot of areas still to this day where it's not that easy to get a test for acute infection. Certainly, I'm excited for the time when we can get more antibody testing out there so we can see who's already been infected. But given what we now know, and you look and see that there's an infection, a total infection number well beyond a million, And then you look at the number of deaths, which are starting to get closer and closer to, say, 100,000. We don't know where that number is going to end up. 
What does your gut tell you right now when you look at the number of infections, the number of deaths? When this is all said and done, I'm putting you on the spot. What do you feel the mortality rate is going to be in this country? Are we way underestimating the number of infections or do we just have no clue? The data that are now emerging based on antibody testing does suggest, as many people had suspected, that we are grossly undercounting the actual infections. This is a strange virus. Influenza tends to hit most people about the same. And then there's an outlier group that die and there's an outlier group that really don't get hit hard. But most people get hit about the same. This virus hits some people like a sledgehammer, but it now appears that perhaps as many as 20 people for every one that develops symptoms either don't have any symptoms at all or are mildly sick such they never even present for medical care. So if you count 20 of those for every one people that person that we're talking about now, the actual number of infections is probably way larger than we currently think. But again, we will not know this until we have robust testing throughout the country and we can look at numbers in each and every county. I take it with a grain of salt when I hear about certain areas where there are COVID hotspots unless you're talking about what's actually happening in the hospitals, because the numbers, the numbers can lie right now. I want to ask you about your past experiences as an ID doctor in the ER. I've never, to my knowledge, I've, I've never seen a virus quite like this where so many people are fine that they don't even know they are sick. What is it about this novel coronavirus that allows it to infect some people so harshly. My last week's podcast was with Colton Underwood, who, former professional athlete, in his, his mid-20s, this virus took him down and his, his pulse doubled. And he said, Travis, if I wasn't in good shape, I think I would have died. Meanwhile, you mentioned maybe 20 other people get this and feel fine. What is it about this virus that allows it to do this? We don't know. I mean, that's one of the central themes that you and I have talked about the last time and I think will reverberate this time. We still don't know lots and we need to be very careful as experts to pretend that we know things that we don't know. We don't know what the, how is this virus causing disease? It is very clearly different than other infections or even other viruses we're accustomed to seeing. You mentioned this fascinating phenomenon where people uh, walk into the ER. They don't come by ambulance. They walk into the ER and like, I don't feel that good. I'm sort of short of breath. And you put the test on their finger to measure the oxygen in their blood and the amount of oxygen in their blood is not compatible with life. And you're like, I don't understand this discrepancy. How, how is this person still conscious with that small amount of oxygen? And then you've got, as you say, 20, 30, 40 year olds in our ICUs on ventilators. And then you've got people in the community that are apparently didn't develop symptoms. We just don't understand the, how this virus is causing disease at this point. And, and anyone would acknowledge that any virus that could infect one person and they're enjoying a glass of wine, <laughs> completely unaware that they're infected. And then again, you've got these other individuals where they are so sick and it's so scary. And I've, I've said on my podcast a number of times that until someone has seen someone who has air hunger, you can't fully appreciate how scary that situation is. It is one of the most frightening things you will ever see in a patient's eyes when they cannot catch their breath, which many people are dealing with. 
So I've called it a silver lining, Dr. Spellberg. The silver lining being that if a lot more people have been infected than we now know about, there is a chance that this virus is not as lethal as the numbers might imply. Because if you just look at the number of infections and number of deaths, you could look at those and say, oh my gosh, mortality rate could be close to 5%. Where do you see this going from here? Because we're starting to reopen things. And I know here in Tennessee, we're all a little bit anxious to see how the next few weeks go because we are one of the first states to loosen restrictions. And what do things look like as people go back to getting their hair cut at their local barbershop or go go back to the dentist for dental cleanings. In your opinion, how does this play out and how should it play out across the country? Yeah, so actually you've raised several really important points, Dr. Travis, and let me address them one at a time. If I had to guess the mortality rate, which is number of deaths divided by everyone infected, including people that never develop symptoms, is probably closer to 0.5%. Bad, but not as bad as people have been mm-hmm. reporting. That actually misses a really important lack of parallel to influenza. Influenza, we have vaccines for. So as it tears through the community, a large percentage of the population is not going to get it. And that prevents even people who haven't been vaccinated from coming in contact with symptomatic patients who might spread it to them. All of us are kindling for this virus. There are 7 billion sticks of wood for this virus to burn through on this planet. And so even if the mortality rate is closer to a bad influenza season on a per patient basis, the fact that way more of us are at risk for it means the total death count would still be way higher. The other thing I would point out is that the mortality rate of the worst influenza pandemic in the history of the world, the 1918-1919 pandemic, was on the order of two to 3%. That was absent ICUs and ventilators and emergency room physicians. Now we have a mortality rate, even if it's as low as 0.5%, that's with ICUs. You talk about the 20 and 30 year olds who come in and in our ICU, if they survive, it's because we have ICU care to give them. Mm -hmm. If we open up too soon, or if we don't keep some form of social distancing in place, we will overwhelm our ICUs and those 20 and 30 year olds will die because we won't have ventilators for them. We won't have doctors to care for them and nurses to care for them. And I think your analogy works in using this example of kindling. This is a fire that is burning, and we've seen it rage in New York City, in Italy. It's not going to go away. The fire is not going to go out. And what you're talking about is something I believe in, which is this needs to be a slow, steady fire that we manage. Everyone knows that if, if you have a fire, you can usually manage it. But if you let that fire get out of control, it can ravage society. It can, and, and I think of this fire right now as being in this place where we just, we don't know its overall capability, but if we do not take the attempts, as you said, to continue to be smart, we will get in trouble quickly. Having said all of that, I am also very cognizant of where we are as a society, which is we are fraying at the edges. And we have spent now, many of us, 
six weeks, if not more, bunkered down. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their their livelihoods. Uh People are losing their minds, quite literally. So how in your opinion, do we balance this out? Because I have my own opinion, which I'll share in a moment. But but I think there is this delicate balancing act here, acknowledging the fire is not going to disappear until we do either get an effective vaccine or we develop herd immunity, which that's going to that's not going to happen tomorrow. And that there are a lot of bad consequences from that. So let's talk about that balancing act of how we can still be smart about social distancing. Because I was talking with my parents last night. My, my dad is in his seventies and dealing with cancer. And I said, dad, you and mom, you are classic examples of you have to indefinitely bunker down. But also mom, dad, you have to understand that there are going to be other parts of society where otherwise healthy people will start getting back to work because they can't bunker down for 18 months which is a, such a conundrum because it does. It feels like you're trading. It's like life versus economic benefit. And we've never had to talk about this before. It's a conversation that we need to have. And, and I've been having it with my friends. I'm having a lot of friends ask me about, oh my gosh, when, when childcare opens back up in Tennessee, should I send my kid to childcare? Risk benefit. That's a classic. I'm an economics major. Risk benefit. That's, that's classic economics. So give me your opinion on how we balance that out, because I know I know you're a you know a reasonable human being as well as a great ID doctor. Yeah, I appreciate that. There isn't one answer because it isn't one pandemic. It's a patchwork of pandemics depending on where you are in the world, and I think that we're going to have to customize how we reopen to local conditions on the ground, respecting that unlike New Zealand or Taiwan which are islands and could just close their borders. Whatever they do, they don't have to worry about the rest of the world. If we in one county or state do something specific and our neighbor doesn't, it will spill over onto us. That's the complexity. I think we do have to accept that as dangerous as this virus is, and as, as in my opinion, and I think yours as well, as disadvantageous, as, as bad as it would be to reopen everything, If we shut everything down for too long, it will cause just as much harm. So we have to find, as you say, a balance where we focus on reopening that focuses, I think, on economics and jobs. We cautiously reopen things that allow people to get back to work so they can earn a living, so they can pay their mortgage, so they can buy food, so they can pay for childcare. We we have to do this in a thoughtful way, but it isn't a one size fits all. It's going to be very depending on the location. And doing it in a way where you are protecting society's most vulnerable, those with compromised immune systems, those who are elderly. And it's a delicate balancing act, but certainly the conversation has started and will continue. And there are going to be good models out there and bad models because it is a patchwork, which, you know, I I don't know what your opinion is on that. It does feel very much like what's happening here in Tennessee is probably very different than where you are in California, which is very different than Florida and New York. And, and I, I can appreciate that. I understand how each community needs to have their own game plan, but what I, what I will say at times has frightened me a little bit is given that there is no, Look, we have a national standard of currency, right? So you know what a dollar's worth. I know what a dollar's worth, whether I'm spending it in California or Tennessee. 
I'm a little bit, I have some trepidation, especially given that we're about to give birth to our child that, you know, if the state one hour, two hours South of here and using Georgia as the example, first state to reopen and we have interstates coming from every other state right through Nashville. And so if I'm going, going to all of a sudden be selfish and focus on being a father and a husband and protecting my family and I have interstates coming through, it does matter to me what they're doing, not just in Tennessee, but in Kentucky, in North Carolina, in Arkansas, in Illinois, in Georgia. That's why this is such a unique thing for people to understand is what happens in Atlanta affects Nashville and Louisville. And, and, and people, I think, sometimes forget that short of, I think it was a Gallup, New Mexico. Was that is the town that just shut everything down? They shut down all the roads leading into it. We can't, we can't do that unless you're an isolated community somewhere. You know, actually, let's take a step back. Uh, I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy here uh, where people, I think, naturally and understandably blame the mitigation efforts, the social distancing, the safer at home orders for the economic slowdown. The virus caused the economic slowdown. Think about what we had discussed last time, the Thanos plan. I'll just let it wash over everybody and eventually we'll get herd immunity. Think about how that plays out economically. We have, say, for example, 2,000 deaths in a day in the United States now. What if that number was 30,000 deaths or 50,000 deaths in a day? Would people be leaving their house? If there were dead bodies in the streets because our funeral homes were full, as occurred in Europe, would people really be going to the store? Would they be going to restaurants? No, the virus causes the economic meltdown. We're attempting to mitigate, and in mitigation, we have to balance the real need to limit viral spread from the fact that if we do too much for too long, then it'll tilt to too much economic harm relative to viral harm. So you're correct. While we have to allow for local customization, there needs to be coordination at a state level and at a federal level. And that coordination is what we're trying to figure out right now. It's why folks like us have conversations and allow people to listen in and, and they can start thinking about their own communities. And the answer is still out there. But it is important for people to realize that if we all just went into our own homes and came back out a certain period of time later, the, the fire will still be burning. So there is, to me, there is this happy medium. I feel like balance is such an underutilized mentality when it comes to health and wellness. You know, if I could talk about diet, I'll say, look, eat healthy most of the time, but it's okay sometimes to eat something as a treat. Well, with this virus, I actually think we can do a good job of starting to reopen things and still be smart. And I look at a lot of companies in Nashville who I think have done a really good job of instituting these new unique measures that minimize unnecessary human interaction while still mac maximizing economic activity. Then I'll, I'll go into other places and I'll think, wow, they're doing nothing here. <laughs> so if, if we're all smart about this, do you not believe that we can really get things humming along at a much faster clip economically, but still keep those most vulnerable in society safe for the most part? Necessity is the mother of invention, right? That's the old saying. 
as we confront a new reality that none of us, I mean, there's maybe a dozen people alive on planet Earth that remember 1918, 1919. You got to be 100, 910 years old to remember it. Um, we're confronting something none of us has ever confronted before, and we're having to think through creative solutions to it. My own personal feeling is we are not ready today to reopen. I do not think we're ready. I would like at least another two weeks. Frankly, I would prefer through all of May. If we had continued the decline in cases we had seen initially, I would feel better. I think we've sort of plateaued and in parts of the country still rising, but it is what it is. We are where we are. And as we go forward, we will have to come up with creative ways to allow people to make a living, to go to work, to buy food, in a manner that is somewhat protective. I mean, just in medicine alone, we've learned maybe not everybody has to come physically see their doctor for their primary care visits. Maybe a lot of the times we can do those via telemedicine. Maybe in the emergency department, we've instituted a home oxygen program. We have oxygen tanks in our ER. You come in and you need a little oxygen, we're gonna send you home with an oxygen tank and call you tomorrow to make sure you're okay. Maybe we can extend how we do care. That is the same of business. Businesses are figuring out how can we still do business in a socially distancing, responsible manner. Well, back to the medical part, I've never before in the ER told people, look, you should have a pulse oximeter at home. And for anyone listening, that's where you can get your blood oxygen saturation at home as well as your pulse. And in this disease process, if you start to see a sudden drop in your oxygen saturation, that is an objective measurement. Well, never before in my career have I ever told people that I think this is something worthwhile to have at home if you are worried you have this infection. And if it's a good pulse ox, it works just as well at home as in a doctor's office. And you can quickly determine at home if maybe you do, do need supplemental oxygen. So the paradigm shift is already happening. And, and I do think that we're going to come out the other side of this, a stronger country with a better healthcare system. And we are going to also, maybe some of the customs of the past that would spread these viruses will have gone by the wayside. I don't think you're going to see season one of the doctors. I would go out after every single show and shake hands with almost every audience member. That stuff doesn't need to happen anymore. <laughs> the new social norm is we don't need to do that, folks. You can, you can be really nice to one another without shaking everyone's hands. So there are certain paradigm shifts that will happen. And we'll, because of that, we'll probably end up ha having fewer influenza cases every winter and, and whatnot. Where I do want to, and I love talking with you, Dr. Spielberg, because you're based in California. Now, California is a very different place than Tennessee. It just is. <laughs> Both politically and, and socially, because I've spent a lot of my time in LA, a lot of my time here in Nashville. And Harkening back to our first conversation, I could not be more proud of what I've seen people do in this country. The fact that the majority of people have spent over a month now taking these measures of social distancing. When I last talked to you, people were still going to the beaches and partying in groups of hundreds, half naked, arms around each other, drinking while people were dying in hospitals. And you, I, I was going crazy mentally. What I've seen since then is everyone taking it seriously. And if anything, I, I, in my own community, am so grateful because everyone has taken this seriously. But I also know the limits of human 
the human psyche and the ability. If someone can do this for four weeks, can they do it for 10? I I'm starting to see some civil uprisings. I'm starting to, I I don't want to have a civil war in this country where you have, you know, and, and, and I'm not trying to make light of this at all, but I, I have seen a, a slow evolution because, again, the South is, is starting to open up sooner than many other regions in the, in the country. We won't know how that impact looks for a few more weeks. But what I have, and Dr. Spellberg, I want you to tell me if I'm crazy or not. I'm not the ID expert. I'm not. But what I've seen as things are slowly reopening this week there's people are still doing the smart thing. So if you go into a restaurant right now and in certain parts of Tennessee, you can go into a restaurant half capacity. They will have, instead of just signing your check, like you normally do, there's an entire bin of clean pens. (laughs) And I know this is subtle, but it's, it's something (laughs) no longer is everyone just walking in and grabbing the same pen and 200 people touch that pen in a day. Businesses that are reopening the doors are remaining open. So people aren't touching all the doorknobs the really smart businesses are still doing everything curbside and they're taking payment over internet. So there's no exchange of currency. I have seen an evolution of our new economic normal and I've seen it in many ways done well. I've seen it done poorly, but I am of the mindset that if we do this the right way, slowly but surely we can, how can I say this without getting into trouble? (laughs) Any loss of life is too much. But we, the fire is not going to go out immediately. And so there are going to be people, more people infected. But we can at least walk that fine line, that tightrope, and do it in such a way that we get to the other end and we say, you know what, we did the best we could. You know, there were a few times there where the tight, walking on the tightrope, it got a little unsteady. But we got to the other side with the least possible harm done in terms of human life and people's livelihoods. The worst pandemic in the history of the world was the 1819 flu pandemic. And you think back, they didn't have ICUs, they didn't have smartphones, they didn't have Amazon. And you're like, how did they make it? They didn't have antibiotics. How did they make it through? 50 million dead, billions infected. This too shall pass. The Black Plague of the Renaissance or the Middle Ages killed a third of the world's population. This too shall pass. I think what you're saying, which is as is want for you to often say, Dr. Travis, which is why I like talking to you, sensible, it's common sense, it's yin-yang and it's balance, is we need to make sure that we limit the damage the virus causes in its totality. That's health and wellness, And economics is a form of health and wellness. The social determinants of health are bigger drivers of health outcomes than medical care. That's what we've learned in the last 20 years. If we bankrupt everybody and put them all out of their houses and they can't buy food, they're going to die of other things. So what you're getting at is the need to take a rationed, balanced approach. That approach, in my mind, is not quite ready for general reopening. But to your point, we invented smartphones and we put people on the moon. Surely we can creatively find ways as we gradually, Mm -hmm. carefully reopen to be safe, knowing, and I think this is the other corollary, that we may go through some peaks and valleys. We may reopen. We may have to close back down. We may reopen. We may have to close back down until there is general immunity. 
there may be cycles and those cycles may vary by geographical locale. And I'm glad you're talking about using things like smartphones because getting back to the fire analogy, we need to find out where these hotspots are before they, the fire gets out of control. Last time we spoke, we talked about how in a pandemic such as the Ebola virus, where the mortality rate is so high, because it kills its host so efficiently sometimes, it's sometimes easier to keep those outbreaks localized. You can use things like contact tracings. Is it fair to say that with this virus, given that you may have so many people walking around without symptoms that and it's and it's everywhere now. I mean, it, this is not in just one community. Are we past the point of of ever being able to contact trace with this virus because it's been everywhere? Are we more so just like you said, being smart, finding the hot spots, trying to mitigate, balancing this out so that it never gets out of control again? We've seen the hospital scenes in New York City, Italy. We just don't. We don't want any more cities, counties, towns to go through those experiences. Is there a time where next fall where, where we're going to have all this, all these systems in place where we can contact trace or has that ship sailed with this virus? You know, it's a great question. Uh, I, w- I would say the first thing is just for some context in L.A. Um, and in much of California, uh, you know, we did start socially distancing pretty early and dodged the big surge. But mm-hmm. because of exponential spread. I really do think we were one to two weeks away. If we had socially distanced, if we had started safer at home one or two weeks later, we would be New York. That It's that razor thin, the margin where you go from it's manageable to you're overwhelmed and there's dead bodies in the street. We have a hospital full of COVID-19 patients right now, Dr. Travis. We have an ICU full of them, but they are at a level that has not yet exceeded our capacity. And this is what concerns me. If we're having conversations about reopening now, when I already have a hospital full, two to three weeks after we reopen, are, are those flames going to reignite? And am I going to then get overwhelmed? We are going to have to very carefully dial this down and up, realizing that where we are now is not like where we were in February. Had we started as a country in February to initiate social distancing, we will, might be in a position where you could be talking about aggressive containment. The reality is, as you're pointing out right now, it is so widespread, there would have to be a hundredfold decline in cases for us to even have a chance. Think about what goes into contact tracing. I'm gonna take one person who's infected, every person they've come in contact with for the last 14 days, I'm gonna chase all of them down and put all of them in isolation for 14 more days. And now you have to do that for thousands of people. There's no possible, you'd have to have a hundredfold decline in cases for it to become possible for that to do. So what we do is we use the lessons that we've already learned. Dr. Spellberg, you were really prescient when you said that this virus isn't that smart. It needs us to spread from one host to the next. And I still think back to our first conversation. It was breaking my heart because you and I both knew that the time to act was a week earlier, and yet people were still going out to bars and partying. And, and it, people can't remember that now. But I remember seeing scenes of downtown Nashville. The bar scene was alive and well, and no one was taking it seriously. Well, I have a different view now. I think people are taking it seriously. And we have learned that 
the measures that seem so simple are yet still so effective. And that is the hand washing, washing your hands as much as possible, not touching your face, particularly your eyes and your nose where those most moist mucous membranes lie. I, I think this, this six feet of social distancing, you know, it is okay. I think at this point in time, if you are low risk, if your neighbor is in your front yard and you're having a conversation with them, socially distanced, that's okay. And I don't want people to feel so guilty that they cannot maintain these, these friendships, these relationships, the, the businesses that, are, that you can still be smart. If we are smart and we still, to the best of our abilities, socially distance, wash our hands, don't touch our faces, we know that we can flatten the curve. So if there are hot spots, we know what we need to do. But if we're not smarter than this virus, and we are, it could go back to where it was before in New York City and other communities in, the, in this country. And so that's why it's this, you mentioned the yin and the yang. Every single friend I have is asking me what they should do from here on out. And you and I are not politicians, so we're not going to be setting the course for when everything reopens. But tell me if I'm wrong here. I, every, everyone I'm telling, I'm saying, you should just keep doing what you're doing, which is if you've learned how to wash your hands more and not touch your face, you're already winning <laughs> because we all, we all have a habit of doing these things out in public where we grab a door handle, we open it, we go into a store, and then we wipe something out of our eyes. Boom, you're infected, potentially infected. If you stop that activity alone, six months from now, if this virus is still circulating, which it likely will be, you're being smart. And, and we all have that power within us to just be as smart as we can be. And that's how I'm treating our lives. That's how I'm, I'm telling my wife, because she is so obviously nervous that we're going to deliver a baby and that COVID-19 is going to be either in that hospital room when she's delivering, or we're going to bring it home with us. And I'm like, look, honey, all we can do is be smart. We can't live in fear of this. We All we can do is be smart and take some measure of thankfulness that the mortality rate may be closer to 0.5% than being 5%, 10%. Yeah. If we're thoughtful in our approach as individuals, I'm not talking societally now, you, you said the key words, wash your hands people that's how we spread this virus there i think there's this belief that mm -hmm. oh it's airborne and if i just walk past this is a primarily droplet spread disease and the reality is we all know people who do the you you say say it don't spray it you remember those interactions most of the time we're not having other people spit in our mouths right the droplets spread by us touching those droplets on surfaces and then touching our face if we wash our hands if we maintain social distancing, but still when things reopen are able to go about our lives. I mean, I'm coming to work because I'm in a hospital. It's, we're essential workers. We're still socially distancing. We're wearing masks. We're washing our hands. We don't have big group meetings anymore. We do a lot of Skype stuff, right? So if we as individuals take a thoughtful approach, we can protect ourselves. We can, and Dr. Spellberg, I thank you we are indebted to you being such a great voice of reason during these unsettling times. And I remember six weeks ago when we first 
talked about this. We mentioned maybe having another another conversation. Well, I'd love to do this again with you at some point in the future. And everyone, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I would just add one last comment before I say goodbye. And that is, we need to listen to our experts, much like yourself, Dr. Spellberg. This is what you spent your entire career doing. And I thank you for being on the front line here. I thank you for staying up to date and uh, continuing to offer a thoughtful opinion rather than a, a rash one. And, and I look forward to hopefully talking to you soon under better circumstances. And obviously, if anything changes along the way, let me know. And, it, and if, you know, if I'm ever, quite honestly, if I'm ever saying anything wrong, call me up and say, Dr. Travis, <laughs> you're giving bad advice, buddy. No, I've never heard you give bad advice, Dr. Travis. My, my wife would differ. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, there's one other major point I wanted to make that hasn't, I think, gotten enough attention. As we have seen the economic slowdown occur, people have lost their jobs. 25 million people have filed for unemployment in a month. Three quarters of them have lost their health insurance because in this country, we're the only industrialized country that links health insurance to employment. Maybe it isn't the best idea to remove health insurance and hence healthcare access from people, millions of people, in the middle of a once in a century global pandemic. Do you think maybe that's not the best idea? The individual who's lost their healthcare access may suffer harm or death from the virus. Everyone around them may suffer because that person is too afraid to go get healthcare because they can't afford it and therefore will continue to spread the virus. This is insanity. Our healthcare system is broken. People are going bankrupt and people are dying, which is why I wrote this book, Broken, Bankrupt and Dying, which comes out in June. COVID-19 has stripped away the veneer of healthcare access for Americans. We're getting ripped off and we're dying because we don't have good healthcare in this country and it needs to be fixed. I am so glad you wrote that book. And obviously you started writing that book before you even knew what this would become. And I, I for one, am excited to read it. And I encourage everyone out there when this book comes out to give it a read because it's time. It's time to make some changes. And um, what better time than to demand a change in our healthcare system than right here, right now. Dr. Spellberg, really looking forward to your book. Really appreciate you coming on today and chatting with me. Keep up the great work and we'll talk soon. Sounds great. Thank you, Dr. Travis. I hope you enjoyed listening. Do not forget to subscribe and download and tell your friends. I would love to build this community and continue to be all about authenticity, optimism, and hope. Uh, looking forward to the next podcast. We'll see you soon. The Travis Stork Show podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional, medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional.